0: Uh, and look at the text which is printed there. I want us to especially uh, look at verses 3 and 4 this evening in the first chapter of the second letter of Peter where the apostle who is in the last months of his life, he says a little later on that he is about to put off this body as the Lord has made clear to him. And he says in verse 3, because of sinful desire. Now, as it says on your order of service, tonight's theme, tonight's title is Cultivating Christian Character. Be careful with this. It's a, I have a wooden one at Grove, which is incredibly sturdy. I could put all my weight on it and uh, and it doesn't budge, whereas this one's just a little uh, flimsier, but I'll try not to push too hard. If I get really carried away, then I'll just stand back a bit, won't I? Anyway, let's think about a specific illustration which helps us think about this whole business of, of cultivating Christian character, of, of living the Christian life. I want you to imagine that we are cultivating A farm. Now, I could use all sorts of other images. I could imagine a a garden, uh, a musical composition, and there's plenty of music I can tell in this congregation tonight. It could be a work of art or literature. Uh, It could be putting together a meal, a banquet. It could be any number of things. You can adapt what I'm saying. But here is a, a project, if you like, Let's stick to the idea of cultivating a farm. Now, I don't know much about farming. Maybe many of you don't either, living in the middle of London. Maybe some of you do know a great deal about farming. My uncle was a farmer. My grandfather before him was a farmer. And their ancestors, going back a long, long way, were all farmers. But I'll keep it as simple as I can. A farmer wants to be successful, doesn't he? And there are three vital ingredients to that success. Number one, he needs to know what he is aiming for. He needs to know what the successful end product will look like. In his case, it will be a large quantity of good quality crops. Secondly, he needs to have the essential raw materials in order to succeed. Enough land, enough seed, enough equipment, enough workers. And thirdly, the farmer needs to put in the work, not only once at the beginning, but all the time, ongoing, habitual, hard work as he works this farm. Now, I want to think about living the Christian life and spell out what that means in terms of these three ingredients. The first then is this. The end in view. What is the end in view in the Christian life? What are we aiming for? Why is Peter writing this letter in the first place? He's writing to a number of Christian believers who are scattered across the Roman world, and it's very clear from the letter that they are being troubled and assaulted by false teachers, by people who would want to distort and change and undermine the pure Christian gospel. And we read a lot more about them in chapter 2, and indeed in chapter 3. And really in the second chapter of Second Peter, from verse 10 to the end, we read about the, the character of these false teachers, their immoral character. And they're very much in Peter's thinking as he writes to these beloved Christian believers that he has in mind. In many ways, the key text, I think, in this whole letter is found in chapter 3 and in verse 11, where Peter says, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. Friends, brothers and sisters here tonight, you and I are living in a world that is unholy and ungodly. It always has been. But there are new and sinister threats which are developing all the time, that would want to unsettle you and me from pursuing the Christian life wholeheartedly. And that's why this message comes to us as it did to them. So what is the end in view for you and for me in living the Christian life? It's what I've called the cultivation of Christian character. It is, as Peter says, In verse 4, that we may become partakers of the divine nature. Now just pause a second and ask yourself, what does that actually mean? How can you, how can I, be a partaker of the divine nature? God is infinite. I'm finite. God is eternal. We're only here on this world for a short time. God is all-knowing, omniscient. You and I only know a little bit. So many ways. We will never be. We can never partake of the divine nature, can we? But what Peter means is this. In terms of God's moral character, the purity and the righteousness and the holiness of God, you and I are called in Christ to be partakers of the divine nature. And to develop in our lives these eight fruit, if you like. Peter doesn't call them fruit as Paul does in Galatians. But that's really what they are from verses 5 to 7. There are eight qualities listed there from faith through to love. And you and I, friends, if we call ourselves Christians, we should be seeking to cultivate these eight crops in our lives. What does a farmer want to do? He wants his farm to flourish. He wants there to be a good, successful bumper harvest every single year. And for you and for me, that should be our aim in our Christian lives. Do you, do I want to be fruitful? Do we want to flourish as Christians? I hope we do. But there's a bigger consideration than that isn't there it's not what you want it's not what I want it's what the Lord wants the Lord wants you and me to flourish in our Christian lives by bringing forth these fruits but what exactly do we mean by character and I want to just pause for a second and say something that I think is extremely necessary At this present time. What is character? Maybe, I think this is true, that we often use the words character and personality interchangeably. We say somebody has a strong character. Or we say they have a strong personality. And we mean the same thing. And I know that we do that. But I think it's helpful for us tonight to actually carefully distinguish personality from character. They are related, but they're not identical. And I want to explain how that works. What do I mean by personality? I mean someone's basic temperament. The way they are by nature, through a combination of their genetics and their whole life experience, through nature and through nurture, through what they've done and what they've been exposed to, as well as what they are from their mother's womb. And you know what I mean, don't you, by personality. We all have differing personalities, which, which by and large are, are fairly fixed. Some people are chatty. Some people are quiet. Some people are ambitious. Some people are more resigned. Some people are sporty. Some people are sedentary. They sit down for their sports in their armchairs and watch television. Some people are creative. Some people are more contemplative. Some are morning people. Some are evening people. And you're looking at each other saying, I know what I am and I know what you are. Some of us are neither one nor the other. That's personality, isn't it? But character is a different thing. And here character is under the spotlight. It has a clear, moral, ethical dimension. It's about what is morally right and good. And the eight qualities listed in verses 5 to 7 are qualities of Christian character. And this is the point. The Bible is far more concerned about your character and mine than it is about our personality. Our personality is neither here nor there, really, compared to our character. Take these apostles, take Peter, take Paul, take John. They're all different men, aren't they? You can see that Peter is a much more instinctive kind of person maybe than, than John was. Paul is a more academic sort of mind than, than Peter was. They're all different. They have different natural gifts. Peter is very good in boats and with nets, Paul is very good with tents and so on. But both Peter and Paul and John and all the rest and all of us, whatever our personalities and our abilities and our temperaments might be, we are all called to develop and mature the same Christian character that we see here and in other places. What is a mature Christian? Somebody whose Christian character has developed and is developing. Look at verse 8. Peter says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing. Now let me apply this. Your personality and mine should never be an excuse for us not pursuing these qualities and not growing. And yet, at the same time, it's true that some personality types might find it more challenging to grow in certain areas. This is just being realistic, isn't it? Let me give an example. A naturally introverted person might find it more difficult to pursue the brotherly affection That we are called to. They have to work harder maybe than others do at expressing this brotherly or sisterly love towards those in the church. On the other hand, a naturally extrovert outgoing person may sometimes struggle to maintain and exercise self-control in their speech. They tend to be outspoken. They say more than they should say. They say really what comes into their heads and they don't even think about it. Now, this is a danger, you see, and we all have to work in various ways. But our personality should never override our character. Supposing a Christian says, I'm not a morning person. I don't like mornings. I don't do mornings. I get stressed in the morning. I'm tired. I'm impatient. Do we therefore say to them, yeah, I know. Therefore, you don't need to worry about self-control and being steadfast and showing brotherly love in the mornings, only when you feel up to it. Is that fair? Is that right? Is that biblical? Maybe Christians can say legitimately, I don't do mornings. Maybe. A Christian, though, should never say, I don't do self-control. There's no excuse for that. We have to do self-control. We're called to it. We're called to develop all these qualities that are listed here. All right, let me leave that there for now. That's the first thing, is that we have an end in sight to bring forth these Christian characteristics. But the second point is this. There are materials provided. Let's go back to our farmer. Imagine a farmer without any materials and any resources, and any tools. Is he a farmer at all? The answer? No. A farmer without a field is no farmer whatsoever, except in his own imagination. He needs fields to farm. He needs tools to make sure that the soil is plowed and and harrowed and broken up and ready for for sowing. He needs the seed or whatever it might be to sow into the soil. He needs more tools to make sure that the soil is scattered and worked into and embedded into the ground. And unless he's only farming a, a very small patch, a very small allotment, he will need other workers to do a lot of the labor for him. And he will probably need a great deal more besides that now understand this what is true of a farmer can also be said about a Christian but it must be said far far more emphatically if you and I want to live the Christian life we need resources what are these resources I'll come to that in a moment but I'll just say this as I go through what these resources are, I want to say at the beginning and at the end that they all come together. They all come as one. They all come in Jesus Christ alone. Let's see how this works. Look with me at the first four verses of chapter 1 of Second Peter. And you can see that there, there is a word in each of these four verses which is a resource that we need. What do I mean? Come with me to the very first verse and what do we find is the key word in the very first verse of 2 Peter? I suggest it's the word faith. You and I need faith. What is faith? It's the conviction, it's the persuasion that comes from outside of us, that comes from God, which he gives to us, and it is the essential first quality that we must have. Without faith, there can be nothing else. What is the subject of this faith? It is this, that God is gracious to you and to me as sinners in giving his only Son for our sins, to die in our place, To be raised to life for us so that we will live in him. It is faith in God through Jesus Christ. It is a personal soul persuasion that God gives to you and to me. And as it says in Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please God. No faith, no hope. No faith, no love. No faith, no life. No faith, no nothing. We need faith. It's the essential resource. But There's another resource, equally essential. Look at verse 2. I'm picking out a word from all of these first four verses and saying, look at these essential resources. What's the essential resource in verse 2? Well, you might say there's all sorts of words there. I'm going to single out the word knowledge. You and I need certain truths if we are to grow as Christians. We need to know things. We need to know God. We need to know that God is real, that he exists. Let me just say this. There's nothing more real than God. There's nothing more real than God. You know, the invisible things are more real than the visible things. Not that these can be any less real, but you know what I'm saying. All that we see, all that we touch, all that we sense, comes about because of the the greater reality behind them, which is our creator God. We need to know God, that he's real, that he's good, that he's mighty, that he's wise, that he's holy. We need to know these things. We need to know that we were created in God's image. That we were created upright. But we've gone our own way and turned away from God. We've fallen and we've sinned. We need to know that Jesus Christ, crucified, is the only Savior from sin. That we cannot save ourselves. We need to know that. And this is only the very beginning of knowledge. Knowledge begins with the ABC. But we must carry on. We must progress in knowledge. We need to know what God has revealed to us. Verse 3. What's the key word I'm going to pick out in verse 3? It's the word power. What power is meant here? It's the power of God. It's the power of his life-giving Holy Spirit. It's a power that we cannot do without. Go back to creation. Imagine yourself being, as it were, a fly buzzing around the Garden of Eden. Not a fly on the wall. There were no walls in those days. There was just open space and trees and flowers. But imagine you're looking at the body of Adam lying on the ground before he's been made alive. What is he? He's a perfectly formed human being. Everything there is perfect. Everything's in the right place. There is completion there. There is perfection there. But there's one thing lacking, isn't there? Life. There's no life in him. Something must happen. God must breathe his life into the nostrils of this man for him to become a living being. And it's the same with you and me before we come to faith in Christ. We are spiritually lifeless. But when God breathes his power into us, what happens to us? We're born again. We're given a new heart. We're given new desires and new appetites. We're given a new ambition, a new aim in life. We long to grow in the grace and knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need God's power. And I suggest, friends, we need it every day don't we? We have not that power in ourselves to even get started, to live the Christian life. We need the power of God all the time. You imagine somebody saying, I want to get from here across the Atlantic Ocean to New York City. I want to Fly across the ocean and land there. So I'm going to run along the runway at Heathrow Airport with my arms outstretched as fast as I can. And maybe, maybe I'll be able to take off and soar into the sky to 35,000 feet and fly all the way across the ocean and land on the other side. Do you think so? You know that's us. But with a mighty Boeing aircraft, you can do that. Because there's a power there that is super, superhuman. And for us to live the Christian life, we need God's power. It's indispensable. Just one more thing here before I bring these together. Verse four, what's the word there that I want us to see? It's the word promises. And there Peter says, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What's the point here? It's this. Every day of our Christian lives, you and I rest on God's unshakable promises in his word. There's a hymn you may know which says, I will stand on every promise of your word. We do. We rest on every promise of God's word. And we could name them. And I could go round this room if there were time and I could say, tell me a promise of God's word. And you could reply, this is a promise of God's word. This is a promise of God's word. We could be here all night, couldn't we? There's a promise of God's word that often I remind myself and my, my wife, Ruth, of every morning when we wake up. And it's this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. There are so many other promises. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Great and precious Promises. Now let me just make one more comment before I go to my final point so that I'm not misunderstood. This is really important, friends. You might say, you've mentioned these four things. You've talked about faith. You've talked about knowledge. You've talked about power. You've talked about promises. I kind of feel I might have some but not others. I, I think I understand what you say about Promises, but I don't get what you're saying about power. I think I've believed the promises, but I don't feel I've got much power in me. I believe I've got faith, but I don't think my knowledge is all that great. And what I want to say is this. These are not four or more different commodities that you and I need to get one at a time to live the Christian life. If you're going shopping, sometimes you have to go to lots of different shops to get what you need, don't you? You're going Christmas shopping. You have to go to this shop and that shop and the other shop. And you go round and round and you go to hundreds of shops, it seems, until you've got what you want. That's not the Christian life at all. All of these are ours if we know Jesus Christ. They're all in him. There's only one Christian super hyper supermarket. Which is the Christ market if I can put it that way. And if you have Jesus Christ as your savior and Lord. You have all of this. A Christian who has Jesus Christ has life. But as John says in his first letter. If we do not have the Son of God, we do not have life. A farmer without resources is no farmer at all. A Christian without Christ is no Christian at all. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Do you know him personally as your Lord and your Savior? Is he someone you relate to and speak to, Someone who knows you. That's the question I have for you. But I want to move on to my final point, where Peter talks about effort and diligence. Look at the beginning of verse 5, and he says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and so on. Now, what's Peter saying here? There are two Greek words in verse 5, and they carry the sense of of exertion, of of zeal, of, of haste, of pursuit, of effort. Let's go back to our farmer. It's the sowing season before the spring comes. What does the farmer do? Does he sit around idly? Does he decide he's going to do it when he feels like getting around to it? Does he take a few days off? Of course he doesn't. He can't afford to. What if the cows need milking every morning at half past five or five o'clock in the morning, even in the winter time? Does the farmer say, well, I think I'll have a lion until half past ten. Then I'll wander down after breakfast and uh, see if the cows want milking. He can't do that, can he? He's got to put in the effort. He's got to put in the toil and the energy. It's the same for any project or any plan that is worth pursuing, isn't it? You've got an exam in a couple of days' time. You're working towards a promotion at work. You're trying to win that competition. You want to purchase that property tomorrow. Well, what do you do? You plan towards it. You work towards it. You put in the hours. You work towards those goals as a matter of urgent priority. And you and I need to see the urgency in Peter's words here. For this very reason make every effort. Wait a moment. What very reason? What is the very reason that he's referring to? Well, we go back, don't we, to see in verse 4 what he's talking about. And he mentions there The corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's the point. We go back to this morning's message, if you were here this morning. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we, if a farmer neglects his fields, the crops will never grow. The land will go to ruin. And if you and I neglect our souls, our godliness, our usefulness to God will never mature as it should. No pain, no gain. Now wait a moment. I can hear some of you possibly thinking to yourselves, This sounds like this preacher is preaching salvation by works. He's telling us we need to do something. He's telling us we need to save ourselves by our own efforts. Is that what Peter is saying? Do I believe and preach that salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone? By God's grace I do. I believe that and I preach that. Am I contradicting myself? Is Peter contradicting himself by saying that we need to make every effort in the Christian life? Well, the answer is this. There will be no desire on your part or mine to make any effort at all in living the Christian life unless we have first experienced the grace of God and the power of God and the promises of God in our own souls. But, once we have known the grace of God, once we have truly tasted of the gospel of God and the power of God and the reality of Christ, then there will inevitably be that desire and that eagerness to make haste and to make the effort in living the Christian life. It must happen. There's a difference between something which is inevitable and something which is automatic. Let me just explain what I mean by that. I remember a preacher, Stephen Clark in Bridgend, some years ago saying this, in, In a sermon I heard him preaching at, he said, some things are automatic, some things are inevitable, but they don't mean the same thing. He meant this, if you are a child of God, if God has given you new birth, you will inevitably in time grow to maturity. But it's not automatic. You still need to work at it. And the point is, if you and I are new creatures, new creations in Christ, we will want that. Real living faith must show itself, must evidence itself. It shows itself to be the real thing by its works. That's the point of James's letter. I will show you by my works, he says, what real faith is. Abraham believed God. What did that mean? It meant that he took his son Isaac ready to sacrifice him because of that faith in God which he had. Real faith finds expression in the godliness that we pursue as his people. You can't farm unless you have a farm to begin with. You can't grow as a Christian unless you have Christ to begin with. But once the farmer has a farm, he will inevitably get farming. And once you really have Christ, you will inevitably want to grow. God's living seed will remain in you so that you will build on faith, you will build on the precious and very great promises of God. And this, friends, brothers and sisters, is a picture of the normal, healthy, Christian life. And in these dark and confusing days when there are many false teachers out there, We need to emphasize these things more than ever. May God himself give the increase to every one of us that we may bring forth fruit accompanying salvation in Christ.